Amen. Okay, so Mark, not like if your name is Mark, we've got 400 of you here who are named Mark. You're really going to enjoy this series because your name's going to be giant and on the screen for the next 15 or 16 weeks. The book of Mark is where we're going to settle in until Easter, which sounds crazy, but it's not that far away. So we're going to kind of walk through the book of Mark, and let me give you a little introduction to our series. I want to encourage each and every single one of you who are here this morning, I want to encourage all of you to dig into the book of Mark over the next 15 or 16 weeks. And when I say dig into the book of Mark, I don't mean show up on Sunday morning and find out what chapter we're in that day and open it up. Okay? What I mean is, I'm going to encourage you, uh, in your bulletin, on the, the, the notes side of the page, at the very bottom of it, it tells you what chapter we're doing next week. I want to encourage you, this week, this week, starting tomorrow, I want you to read Mark chapter 2 every day. Just read through Mark chapter 2. It will take you four to six minutes on average to read a chapter out of the book of Mark. It's not going to take you that long. And I, and I want you, to, as you read it, I want you to... Not committed to memory, unless you're one of those people who likes to commit things to memory. Knock yourself out. I am not one of those people. I like going with the rough idea. That's why when I quote Bible verses, most people are like, it's vaguely familiar. Um, but, 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 but what I want you to do is you walk, man, if you're a journaler, if you're somebody who writes, if you mark up your Bible, then, then just go crazy on that thing. And I want you to highlight the things every time you read through the chapter that stand out to you. Because what you're going to find, and it's awesome, this is part of the, the word of God being alive and active. Um, when you read through the same chapter over and over, the things that stand out to you on Monday may be the same on Friday, but there will be more on Friday than there were on Monday. Because God's spirit is continuing to take that and apply that. If you, you're not sure how to go through it, then I want to encourage you to download an app, because we're cool now. Um, I'm wearing colored pants. That makes me cool, right? Um, <laughs> It's a very low bar, very low bar. <laughs> Thank you. It's a very low bar. Um, download version. version. If you go to Bible.org online, that is their website. But if you download version, you can look at any number of translations of Scripture that are there. You can even do it in different languages if you prefer not to read it in English. Um, but you can go through it and you read it in a different translation every day. There's a lot of different study tools there. I, I just want you to, to bathe in the book of Mark with me um, over the next 15 or 16 weeks. So when it comes to Sunday, usually we're not going to go through the entire chapter together. Usually I'm going to be doing the same thing that you're doing just a couple of weeks ahead. <laughs> so right now I'm working through Mark chapter 5, uh, and I'm going to read it and read it and read it, and then the, the, one of the things that stands out out of the chapter will be what we cover on Sunday morning together. Now that's usually because this morning I'm going to prove to you that I shouldn't preach an entire chapter every week, and I'm going to attempt to preach the entire chapter one. Um, so I will stop when the time says it's time to stop so you don't miss the Raven substitutes playing today. I hate for that to happen. This is your one chance. Enjoy it. Not one chance. I'm not making fun of the Ravens. I apologize. I'm telling you, that, that decision back last January is looking really good for me right now. Anyway, um, all right, so here we go. Book of Mark. Let me give you some background. This, the, the, the book was written by who we would call Mark, his name is actually John Mark. John Mark was somebody who was actually not a disciple of Jesus Christ. John Mark instead uh, was the cousin-nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas was the fellow who traveled with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And during their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas began their journey. John Mark accompanied them until at some point in the middle of that journey, John Mark went back home. We don't know why. 
We just know that John Mark left Paul and Barnabas and went back home. And so when it was time for the second missionary journey to get underway, Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go, and Barnabas was said, let's bring John Mark. And Paul said, nope. He abandoned us. He ditched us. I'm not bringing him. And so there was, the Bible actually says there was sharp dissension between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. So Paul takes Silas. Barnabas takes John Mark. They go their separate ways. Um, and then um, fast forward to the end of Paul's life, and Paul says, John Mark, Philemon 24 says, John Mark is a co-worker of mine. So there's been a change in their relationship. You get to 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says to Timothy, send John Mark, he is useful to my ministry now. So, so this young man, John Mark, began kind of almost like, almost like an apprentice, goes on the journey, abandons ship, and then Paul wants nothing to do with him, but over time, he becomes somebody who has matured, somebody who has been discipled, somebody who has grown, somebody who Paul sees as a valid co-worker in the ministry of the gospel. That's who John Mark is. That's who the fella is that wrote this book. Uh, John Mark spent time with the uh, apostle Peter, um, my favorite one out of all of them. He's the one that I identify with the most, I think, <laughs> because Peter tends to talk first, think second. Here I am, right in front of you, if you ever need to know what Peter was like. Um, so, so, um, Peter, so John Mark spent time with Peter. So much of the source material for Mark, he's probably writing based on some of the things that uh, Peter has shared with him, some of the messages that Peter has preached. What's the point of the book of Mark? The point of the book of Mark is written in those yellow letters up there. It is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this year, 2020, not crazy? The roaring 20s are back. 2020 is going to be a year where at Uniontown Bible Church, we're going to emphasize some things. We're going to emphasize discipleship like we haven't before. We're going to emphasize your personal growth in your walk with Jesus Christ, more so than we ever have before. You're going to hear a phrase over and over again. We want those who attend Uniontown Bible Church to take their next step. Because every single one of us in this room has a next step. It may be we're starting, like a first grader has a next step. They go to second grade. But you might be in a, in a, in a master's program, a graduate program, and your next step is to sit down and write your thesis. But we all have next steps to take. And that's the same thing for us here at Uniontown Bible Church. We want every single person who comes to Uniontown Bible Church to take their next step. And I think the book of Mark is going to set us up incredibly well for that because what happens is this. Discipleship and growing in discipleship flows directly out of knowing who Jesus is. So growing in discipleship flows directly from knowing who Jesus is. And what the book of Mark is going to do for us is going to say, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's done. Because when you know Jesus, your, your faith grows. And we'll, we're going to talk about some of those cliches later. But your faith grows. Your ability to trust him grows. Your worship grows grows. You, you give him your entire life, and you're willing to take him at his word. And so if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, my, my faith is stale. I'm not able to take God at his word. I have great doubts, great questions. Uh, I, I'm not really, I don't have a vibrant prayer life. I don't have a vibrant walk with Jesus. Then perhaps your problem and your struggle is you know about Jesus. 
You just don't really know them. And so what we want to do is dive into the book of Mark so you walk out of this study knowing Jesus Christ. Okay, so this, is, this really is pointless, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Mark is my favorite gospel. Mark is my favorite gospel, and there's a lot of reasons. Number one, it's short. That's a great reason. Some of my favorite books, the shortest books out there. It's short, 16 chapters long. If you sat down and read the book of Mark, it would take you between an hour and an hour and a half to read the entire thing. It's very short. The other thing I really appreciate about Mark is um, he writes like I talk. He jumps from topic to topic with very few transitions. I'm familiar with that. He speaks in hyperbole. I'm incredibly familiar with that. Like he says, the entire town of Jerusalem showed up. Well, probably not. But he's very colorful in his language. He uses a ton of action terms. Everything is action. In fact, over 40 times, Mark, in his book, says the word immediately. And immediately, and immediately, that's his word. It's kind of like my word for 2019 that I was trying to get away from using so much was interesting. Now you're going to notice it. I tend to say interesting, I'm like, and this is interesting, and you'll find this interesting, and interestingly, and if I listen to the critique myself, I'm like, I gotta stop saying that word. Not everything can be interesting. Oh, but it can. That's called enjoying life, people. Um, Mark uses something called duality. Duality is also known as redundancy. I identify with that as well. He talks about how early in the morning before the sun rose, okay, he could get away with just one of those terms. He didn't have to use both. Or in the evening when the sun had set, he just uses duality. I'll try to point that out a little bit just because it's interesting to see. So that, that's kind of why I like the book of Mark. All right, that was free. Everybody take a deep breath. Grab your Bibles. We're going to run the entire chapter one because I want you to see a common theme. So we're going to look at some of the snapshots that Mark gives us right out of the gate. Mark chapter one. Let's start reading in verse 1. I'll read the first snapshot, and then we'll talk. I'll talk a little bit about it as we go through, too, as we go. It says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Okay, so just a little step out here. So what, what he's talking about is one who's going to come, and if you were to take that vernacular and apply it today, it means he is building a road. He is clearing the trees, he is clearing the obstacles, and he's getting ready and prepared to lay down a road. That's what it means to prepare the way. Let's continue, verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. They were baptized by him and confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, similar to colored pants. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap off his sandals. I baptize you with water and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about John the Baptist, just a really, really interesting fellow. Um, he's preparing the way for the Messiah that was to come. He has prophesied both in Malachi and in the book of Isaiah. He shows up, he is dressed interestingly, and he is acting like someone who is unique in that time. And everybody that was familiar with the Old Testament would look at him and say, 
This is the second coming of the prophet Elijah. He is dressed like Elijah. He acts like Elijah. And most of the Old Testament scholars at the time believed that Elijah needed to return before God would restore the good fortune of Israel. And now here stands this one who is filling that role. He is eating weird food. It's actually kosher food. It followed the Mosaic law, but he is just that much more set apart from everybody else. And he makes a comment about the one who is to come after him. He says, I can't even untie his shoes. Now, that seems a little bit strange for us. What he's actually referring to is the custom of the day when the lowest slave in the household, the, the one who held the, the, the lowest position, would greet the guests as they came into the homes, and they would untie their sandals, remove their sandals, and wash their feet as a gesture of hospitality. And John the Baptist says that that position that's reserved for the lowest of low, I'm not even high enough. I don't even score high enough on the scale to be able to, to, to remove the sandals off the feet of this one who is to come, of this one that we've been waiting for, of this one we're longing to see. Let's look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So, just a couple of things to point out in the baptism of Jesus. Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but he, he highlights a few things. One of those things is that as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open. It's quite the phrase, isn't it? Torn open. Open. I don't know about you, but sometimes, uh, particularly toward the end of the afternoon, before evening, you can be driving around and there can be a cloudy day and some of the clouds can just arrange themselves in such a way that the sunlight can be seen coming through the clouds and the beams of sunlight are coming down. Uh, my kids used to always be like, it's Jesus is coming! Um, I don't think that was one of the signs, but that's okay. The idea of the heavens being torn open is a much more, as you can imagine, violent image. The idea is that if it's torn open, it can't easily be put back together. And the phrase that's used, that, that when heaven is torn open, is used so that we would know that God is about to speak or he's about to act. It happens in the Old Testament. Look with me here. Isaiah 64, 1. Man, if you would only tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence. The prayer of Isaiah, that God would tear the heavens open and he would reveal himself in his power and in his might. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So when the heaven tears open, God is about to speak or act, and that's exactly what occurs here. Jesus comes up out of the water after being baptized. The, the heavens tear open, and a, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Now, that's an interesting image as well. Now, if you study conservatively, there are 16 different interpretations of what that means. I'm not going to go through all 16. Some people think it's Israel. Some people think it's referring to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, as God hovered over the expanse before he created. Some refer to uh, Noah's dove as it returns back to the ark, um, telling people that they get to experience God's gracious deliverance. Some people believe it's a bird, relax. 
the long and short, we don't know what the, the image of the dove is, but what we do know is out of Isaiah 11, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of the Lord will then come and rest on the anointed one, on the chosen one, on the Messiah himself. At some point, Isaiah prophesied that and said, this is going to happen, and this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. What's happening at the baptism of Jesus as he comes up out of the water, as the, the heavens are torn open, as the spirit de- descends sorry, uh, upon the shoulders of Jesus, what's happening is an affirmation of the identity and the authority of Jesus Christ as the one who had been spoken of throughout the Old Testament. This is him. After the spirit descends, God the Father speaks. This This one's my beloved son. It can allude to Genesis chapter 22, when Abram is told to sacrifice his son, his only son, the one he loves, Isaac. What's the same verbiage that's used there? This is my son, the one that I love, and I am pleased in him. There, God the Father puts his stamp of approval. He affirms the identity and authority on Jesus as being the one. Look at Mark, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 12. And immediately, there's that word, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were, were serving him. Now, not a lot is said here about the temptation of Jesus. Mark intentionally leaves this short, so I don't want to launch into all of the other gospel accounts of the temptation of Jesus. Instead, I want to handle the temptation of Jesus just within this context of Mark as he writes. And what he's saying is, what you need to know is behind the scenes, there's a battle. And it doesn't appear to be very much, but what you understand based on what he says is, is Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days by himself, only wild animals there, and Satan tried to work him over the entire time. And yet Jesus didn't yield. And the angels came and ministered to him. So, so behind the scenes, there is this, this great battle that is occurring, and that battle was won by Jesus. And now his real ministry gets underway. Look at verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Interesting, Jesus was preaching the same gospel as John the Baptist. Repent, the forgiveness of sins. Repent and believe the good news. Verse 16, as Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. Now, follow me, Jesus told them. I will make you fish for people. And immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a a little further, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately, he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. So so here you have him coming alongside, calling disciples. I think one of the errors of our thought process is that as we see these fishermen, as we see these men, we we assume that they're lazy men. They're they're just fishermen. They're nothing special. And and that's that's a misnomer in our mind. These were businessmen. These were guys who, who worked with their hands, they, they worked hard. They didn't go fishing just to avoid doing chores at home. 
Okay, this is their work. This is what they did. They worked with their hands. And, and actually, with, with James, and, and, and the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, there were employees in his fish, their fishing operation. So this was no small thing. There was some level of means that was there. And Jesus comes alongside them, and he says to them, follow me. And, it, and Mark's wonderful word, immediately, they drop their nets, and they follow Jesus. Immediately, they get out of the boat and they leave daddy to do all the work with the employees. Guessing Zebedee probably wasn't super happy about that. But, but, but Jesus came along and just said, follow me. Follow. So what caused that response in the men? What caused the men, the, 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 these disciples who, who would be disciples, what caused them to respond to Jesus' call to follow them, to, to leave behind the business, to leave behind the family? to leave behind the opportunities to, to grow income? What, what, what led them to leave those things and follow Jesus? The authority and the power of the word of Christ. It's the same that is said in Psalm 33, verse 9. As God spoke, it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. We don't doubt the power of God to speak in Genesis 1. There was nothing. He spoke. Something showed up. That's the power and authority of God himself. As Jesus spoke, there was a level of power and authority in him that caused these men to drop everything. They saw something different because there was something different about Jesus. This one, this one's different. This one has power. This one has authority. Sign me up. Now you really get to see that starting in verse 21. They went into Capernaum. And right away, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he began to teach. Now, he didn't come in like a hostile takeover in the synagogue, okay? Now, Jesus didn't show up and be like, I'll take the microphone and the pulpit, please. The, the, the local rabbis would invite teachers to come and, and read from the, the, the law and then expound upon the law and teach the law to those people there. And that's what Jesus was taking advantage of. Verse 22, this is the people's response to the teaching of Jesus. They were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them as one with authority, not like the scribes. So there's a, a, a difference that is, is set up here. here. Here comes Jesus. He stands before the people. He begins to teach with authority. He wasn't like the scribes. The scribes were a group of people who would continue to quote other rabbis in order to support their views. It would be like going to a, a, a hearing in court and, and have somebody begin to quote case law. Well, according to Williamson v. Virginia in 1982, the, the, the verdict in that was this, so therefore you need to do this. So it, was, it was similar feel to that, but not Jesus. Jesus got up and began to speak like he wrote it with authority and expertise. There's something different about this one. As he's teaching, verse 23, a man with an unclean spirit was in the synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Time out. How does the demon know who Jesus is? I, I think we don't wrestle with that question enough as you read the gospel accounts because this happens to Jesus quite a bit. Jesus comes into the presence of someone who is, um, I almost said infested with demons, I guess that works. Someone who, who is demon-possessed and their first cry out of their mouth is, oh, you're the son of the most high. What do we have to do with you? Don't destroy us. So how do they know Jesus? 
See, don't forget that after creation, all of the angelic beings worshipped God. Lucifer himself was one of the highest angels. They worshipped him, they served him, and then upon the rebellion of Satan, it is said that a third of the angels chose to rebel with Satan against Jesus and against God and against the Holy Spirit, and they were cast out of heaven. And so what is happening in this synagogue is in that moment, this demon is in this person, and here stands Jesus, and as he begins to teach with authority, the demon says, yo, I know who that is. I used to serve him. Jesus rebuked him in verse 25 and said, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw the man into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. And they were all amazed. And they began to ask each other, what is this? This new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? And at once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. See, these people are recognizing something. Jesus is different than everybody else. He has the authority, the power, to do things that no one else can. That's who Jesus is. It continues, verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went to Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law, time out, Simon was married, yes, the one that the Catholic Church believes was their first pope, was married, just saying. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. Okay, so now Simon Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever, the, fever, the, the, the noun of, of, of form of that verb means to burn. So she's burning up with a fever. Anybody get to experience that this week? Good news, most of you will by the end of next week. So praise Jesus. It's that time of year. Um, I don't know why I sang that. That was a little weird. Guess, oh, never mind. I saw a dumb joke coming and I didn't jump on it. My kids should be proud of me. Anyway, um, so, so here, here's this woman burning up with fever and it says that Jesus went to her, verse 31, took her by the hand, raised her up, the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Um, okay, so Jesus removes the fever from her. She stands up, begins to do housework. I'm sure that's how it works in your home when you start feeling better, right? <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'll take a shower. Nope, I'm going to sit back down. I'm not a But she was completely, it wasn't a gradual healing. I'm getting over the flu. It was one moment fever, next moment feeling great. Because with Jesus, it didn't need to be a gradual healing. He has the authority and the power, and it's done. When the evening had come, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. This has always made me laugh every time I read this. So, so this, this, the, the um, sun sets, Sabbath is over, so now people can move freely about. And it says they come and they bring to him all of those who are sick and demon-possessed. So, so they bring all of those. So every person in town who is sick and demon-possessed, they bring to him. Who shows up? Verse 33, the whole town. Uh, I don't know where you live. It might seem at times they're all sick and demon-possessed. But the whole town is now assembled at the door. 
And Jesus healed many. Just want to park on that one word for a second. That's contrary to some false teaching that's out there today. The whole town, all of those sick and demon-possessed showed up, and Jesus healed how many of them? Many. Many who were sick with various diseases, and he drove out many demons. And he wouldn't permit the demons to speak again. Why? Because they knew him. So, so they keep on bringing the sick and demon-possessed. They keep on bringing them. They keep on bringing them. And he keeps on healing them. He keeps on healing them. This isn't doctors without borders. This is something that's far different than that. This is something people have never seen before. He has the authority and the power over sickness. He is the great physician. He has the authority and power over all the demons. He, he, he is the, the mighty God. He is the holy one of God. And so he continues to cast out demons. He continues to heal them. And then he does something crazy. Look at verse 35. In the middle of the chaos, in the middle of all this, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, that's the last um, a shift of the, or watch of the night, it's probably between 3 and 6 a.m. Jesus got up, he went out, he made his way to a desert, deserted place, and there he was praying. In the middle of healing, casting out demons, in the middle of doing good ministry, good things. These are things that were needed to be done. He is doing good things. Do you know what he did? He stopped. He escaped. He went away and he prayed. If Jesus needed to, how much more do we? See, see what's, it's interesting. You keep reading here. Simon and his companions, verse 36, says they searched for him. That word searched is hunted. It's the word that's used for a hunter looking for its prey. I get the, I'll take the inference from that, that Simon and the other disciples are not pleased. Because first thing in the morning, I'm sure, hey, I got another demon-possessed neighbor here. Can you hook me up? Where's Jesus? He's not home. He, he slinked away. He, he disappeared. He went to hide himself from all the craziness, all the busyness. Look at verse 37. I don't know if any of you can identify with this. I can. And when they found him, they said this to him. Everyone is looking for you. There are few phrases that can suck the wind out of my soul like that one. Where are you? Everybody's looking for you. There, there's work to be done. We need to get back down there. And they're right. I mean, if, if Jesus had come just to raise his popularity and to bring about great success, I mean, th th this was a right move to drag him back to the house, to get him about healing again, to get him about casting out demons again, because the popularity is rising. I mean, if this is what he's here for, this is a marketing mistake for him to disappear for a few hours. Be a good Messiah and go back down there and heal people. And he says to them in verse 38, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I can preach there too. See, that's why I've come. See, it wasn't about the healing ministry. He didn't heal everyone. I'm going to talk about that in a few moments. It wasn't about being a wonder worker. 
in the middle of the chaos and the confusion that surrounded him. He nurtured his relationship with his father. And again, I say, if he needed to do that, how much more do we? Do you escape to spend time? And I'm not talking about, okay, you need to do your daily devotions. Okay, that is necessary and right and good. And I'm telling you, my, my father-in-law used to say this, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with him, and I've gotten to that place in my life where I'm with him. I am terrified to not read Scripture every day. Not, not because I think that, 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 that the lightning's going to come out of heaven and strike me for, in front of you all here. There's a lot of reasons God could do that, but I don't think it's because I'm not reading something out of Scripture every day. But it's because this, this, this is my lifeblood. This is... This is how I hear from him. But I'm not even talking about that. How many of you have made it a point to escape from everybody and to leave your phones behind, to leave your computer and email behind, to, to not check email, to not text, to not jump on Facebook, to, to escape and to spend time just with him. To sit silently See, see, too often we're running around 100 miles an hour. We're missing the things that are happening right in front of us. We don't know how to sit silently. We're scared to do that because at the end of the day, when we come home, we have nothing to show for it. So what'd you get done today? <laughs> uh, nothing. But it's more than nothing. It, maybe we don't do it because we're uncomfortable with the idea that God's going to point out a few things in our lives that we'd rather him not put his finger on yet. Without that, how can you possibly stay on task with what he has for you? Jesus was able to say, listen, it's, it's not about all of these other things. It's about the message of the gospel. It's not about the healing. It's not about doing good deeds. It's not about those things. And, and just quickly, I want to say this. We've got to be careful as a church, as your leadership, you can pray for us because we can't allow ourselves to have the message of who Jesus is to be hijacked. Too many times in too many churches all over the country, all over the world, it becomes about acts of service and community and assisting the poor. And let me tell you, those things are good, but they're secondary. That, that's what it means to love other people best. But you can't love other people best if you don't love God most. And so our passion, our desire, our goal is to care for the temporal needs, but, but not stop there because if that's all we do, then we're giving them an incomplete redemption. We're washing the outside while the inside rots. And what needs to happen is we need to maintain an intentionality about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that, we do that through building relationships and through acts of service, but we cannot let the gospel fall. The other real danger is people can come into a church and be like, no, let's make it about morality, about refusing to yield to the, the vices of the world. Let's not drink too much, let's not vape, and let's not hang out with people who drink and vape. No, it's about knowing Jesus. It's about loving Jesus more than anyone and anything else and allowing him to change you, to remake you, to create in you a new creation. It's not about Jesus making much of you and answering your commands that are disguised as prayer requests. It's not you holding him hostage. I'll serve you if you do this for me. And, and we can see that in this next snapshot, this last snapshot. Just bear with me just for a couple moments. And he says this. We, he went into Galilee, verse 39. He's preaching in their synagogues. He's driving out demons. And a man with leprosy came to him. And on his knees, he begged Jesus, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out 
touched him. He said, I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Leprosy is the Ebola of the ancient world. You are isolated. No one visits you. No one comes near you. There's no cure for it. And if for some reason you miraculously survive, you live forever in isolation. Leprosy is a disease that attacks the nerve system and it attacks it to the point where the victims feel pain and, can't ex and they experience infection easily, which then leads to degeneration of tissues and organs and eventually to the point where limbs become deformed and, and might even fall off. It's a horrible condition. And there was no cure for it. But it was more than physical. They were viewed as unclean in God's eyes. A leper was a total outcast from society. Here's the description of how they were to behave. Look at Leviticus. The person who has a case of leprosy is to have his clothes torn, his hair hanging loose, and he needs to cover his mouth and he needs to cry out, unclean, unclean. And he'll remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside of the camp. So there are visible and audible warning signals they need to give to other people to run away. They have no social interaction. I mean, the, the, the center of, of life at this time was, was focused on worship and on the temple, and they were banned from any involvement in it at all. And here this leper sees Jesus, and he breaks the law by approaching Jesus. I mean, it probably wasn't difficult for him to get to Jesus. Think about the leper walking through. It's like the crowd parts, and here comes Je here the leper. And he gets to Jesus, and, and he says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. See, Jesus could heal him. He understood that. But would he? Faith cannot heal you. God can. Faith cannot heal you. God's healing or authority or power isn't limited by your lack of faith. Look at the disciples. How many times did Jesus act in spite of their lack of faith? The source of his healing wasn't the faith of the leper. It was the will of Jesus. If you will, if you are willing, then I can be made clean. The reality that Jesus has authority and power over sickness and death and healing and protecting does not mandate that Jesus has to behave the way we want him to. There is a false gospel that is being preached in our culture today. I would hazard to say that many in this room have fallen for that false gospel. I hate naming names. Not, I'm not going to name any of you. Relax. I've got to rethink how I say that next service. Um, but as a shepherd who is supposed to care for the sheep, I need to cry out when there's a wolf. 
I'm going to read a quote from a wolf, and his name is Joel Osteen. And I don't apologize. I hate doing this. He says, quote, maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes, but you don't succumb to it. No, instead, you say every day, my mind is alert. I have clarity of thought. I have good memory. Every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. See, if you will rise up in, here's the key, your authority, you can be the one to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. If you start boldly declaring, God is restoring health into me, I'm getting better every day in every way. Folks, the leper has a better understanding of who Jesus is than Joel Osteen does. It's not about your faith. It's about God. And the leper approached Jesus and says, listen, if you want, you can do this. And Jesus said, I want. And his leprosy was immediately gone. Who is this? Who is this one with authority and power? It's none of you. You don't get to speak authority and power into existence. The authority and power is in one and only one, and his name is Jesus. And when he speaks, men leave their nets and follow him. When he speaks, they people hear the teaching with great authority. When he speaks, the demons flee. When he speaks and says, shh, the wind and waves stop crashing. When he speaks and says, little girl, get up, a 12-year-old girl comes back to life. When he says, open, the ears open. And when he cries out on the cross, the veil tears from top to bottom because he is the one. And there's no other. Is that the Jesus you know? Because if it is, it's going to change the way you worship. It's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you hope. He's the one. God, thank you for being so very good to us. Thank you for loving us and watching over us. God, I am, uh, I'm, I'm not sorry, I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness for feeling bad about calling out wolves. God, we all need to be careful. And we all need to be cautious. And I have a responsibility. So Lord, forgive me. Lord, protect. I know there are people in here who, who really don't know who you really are. I know there are people in this room who have brought their preconceived notions about Jesus right on in. Father, would you protect them and open their eyes. May they see Jesus as the authority. May they see him as the one. Father, would you keep their focus fixed on him. Lord, may we worship you well. It's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. <laughs>